Welcome to Smooth Operator, the podcast that explores affiliate marketing and digital media. I'm your host, Blake Saunders, and I'll be guiding you through this fascinating world by interviewing the brilliant minds and innovative leaders that shape it. Get ready to be inspired as we uncover the secrets to success in the world of content, commerce, and beyond. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the strategies and tactics that have propelled our guests to the forefront of this industry. Smooth Operator is your go-to source for staying ahead in the ever-evolving digital media space. Subscribe now and let's get started on this exciting journey together. Just a quick word from one of our sponsors and we'll get into the episode. This episode of the Smooth Operator podcast is brought to you by Bullwhip, the leading affiliate performance intelligence and revenue optimization platform for premium publishers. Whether you're an enterprise publisher or premium niche site, Bullwhip can help you optimize audience growth, page engagement, and yield to accelerate your affiliate revenue growth. Head over to bullwhip.io and sign up for a demo to learn how Bullwhip can help you scale and optimize your affiliate business today. Welcome to episode three of Smooth Operator. In today's episode, we have Brent Fraschetti, the VP of Commerce at Recurrent Ventures. Brent started his career at IAC and then spent almost 10 years at Business Insider. And most recently, he joined Recurrent Ventures in the fall of 2021. Brent has played a key role in shaping and scaling the content and commerce strategy at both Business Insider and Recurrent Ventures. On this episode, we'll explore his career journey, get his insights, and dive into his recent move to Recurrent Ventures and the strategies and tactics he's employing to scale their affiliate program. Thanks, Brenton, for joining us today. Let's get started by having you give us an overview of your background. And thanks for having me, Blake. So my name is Brenton Fischetti. I started at a division of IAC called Pronto, which was a comparison shopping website back when those were more popular. I had two distinct roles there. First, I was doing sales and account management. Well, account management first, then sales. And then later moved into kind of like a partnerships and and business development type role. Then I moved over to Business Insider, now called Insider, where I was for about 10 years. The first half of that being an extension of what I did at Pronto, business development, audience development. And then starting in late 2014, I got involved in our affiliate business, stood that up from basically nothing to where it was. And I ran that until the summer of 2021 when I joined Recurrent Ventures to oversee affiliate marketing, the same thing I was working on at Insider, as well as brand licensing and partnerships. So just to dig in more at your time at IAC, obviously today, uh, IAC is more synonymous with dating and residential services and now dot dash, but you were part of IAC at the beginning um, when they were big in web 1.0. Can you tell us a little bit more about Pronto? Was that like the first time you started to see how shoppers could engage online and started to see more of the opportunity around e-commerce? Yeah, I mean, so I was a pretty junior employee at Pronto. So I think a lot of the the learning that happened there, I didn't really notice at the time. But I think IAC was still primarily driven by Match Group before they spun out. But they've they've always had bets across the the digital media ecosystem, and one of those was Pronto, in comparison shopping. But one of the things that I learned was just like through how people use Google and how that changes over time, and the power and the service that Google provides. But it was also a cautionary tale of what happens if you aren't able to diversify your business. And Pronto had some over-reliances that, you know, kind of helped guide my my thinking for how to build a, a business later on in, in my career. But the foundations of performance marketing were, were already all there, right? At Pronto, we talked about ROI targets, revenue per click, earnings per click, 
affiliate was a piece of the business, although relatively small, and CPC advertisers. So when I was working at Insider and I had a little bit of a break from pure e-commerce, doing media partnerships and stuff like that, coming back to it made me realize that a lot of that stuff has always been there. It's like that expression, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Kind of like the Rakuten dashboard, which I logged into for the first time like 13 or 14 years ago and still has the exact same UI. So after IEC and Pronto, you joined Business Insider where you had two different hats. You did both business and audience development and then commerce. Can you walk us uh, through your first role? Yeah. So business and audience development was pretty much a junior business development role. Some of the stuff that I was doing at Pronto before I left, which is you know looking for ways to drive either incremental traffic or incremental revenue. And business development in media is, is really just those two things, right? It's either you need to find ways to bring more readers to your content or more viewers to your content or figure out how to take the assets that you produce, the articles, the videos, the, the storytelling stuff, and drive more revenue from that content, right? If it's monetizing on the site via programmatic ads, can you also send that content to Facebook and monetize it through instant articles? Can you syndicate it to MSN or Yahoo? So off-platform monetization is, is kind of the best, or can you make the pages you have more efficient from a revenue point of view? So you kick the tires on a lot of stuff. You used to call it turning over the couch cushions, looking for money. And we found some really incredible partnerships that way, uh, many of which are still kind of pillars of the kind of digital media industry now. But yeah, that was the first role. And, and then for a very brief amount of time, I also kind of led the email channel and, and just sort of like content partnerships. You mentioned there's some partnerships that are still a big deal today to general media companies, maybe at businesses that are still, but can you talk about some of those partnerships that you started? Yeah, I mean, they those ecosystems were getting built out. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to take credit for having like invented sure. them or anything. But this was stuff like Taboola that, you know, Taboola or Outbrain, most sites have at least some partnership with one of those two organizations. Content partnerships with larger tech platforms like MSN and Yahoo. We we were very early on with with those two providers and they have very rich and pretty exciting partnerships with probably several hundred, if not thousand publishers each. Those are the main ones. And then obviously the social media and tech platforms, right? So early relationships mm-hmm. with Facebook and, and how their relationship with publishers evolved. Same thing with, although I was a little less involved in, you know, Snap and, and YouTube, but that kind of stuff. Can you talk about your transition over to commerce? Was it something that you wanted to do or was it an opening? How did you first get into it? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think... When you learn how sites acquire traffic and try to drive more of those things, you also see like what kind of content works well and interests people. And so that really helped me get a sense for that. But the affiliate thing, doing affiliate content mindfully and, and directly was something that I pitched to the leadership team sometime in 2014. Insider had been working with Skimlinks since probably 2012. I came across that team When I was originally working at Pronto, we never did anything together while I was there, but I got back in touch with them. So I think we started working with Skimlinks in probably 2012. And so we started to see in the sense of looking for money and couch cushions that there was this relatively small but passive money coming in from affiliate links at the time. And the natural progression of that for me was like, well, what if we actually tried to sell products from articles rather than just like getting lucky a few times a month? But there were some really interesting things. Like I remember... There was an article back 
during the financial crisis or, you know, what was going on in Detroit and people were clicking on affiliate links to buy houses under a few hundred dollars in Detroit or something like that, Mm -hmm. or at least that's what was driving people to these real estate platforms. So it was really interesting to see like what kind of popped up on the radar and that that kind of initial partnership helped us formulate our content strategy later when we gave affiliate a proper go. So you mentioned these different data points in your job, like the previous one around business and audience development, finding revenue, helping grow audience. Did you have access to the data on a daily basis? And so was it just natural to kind of see some of these green shoots coming up of where potentially you could get additional revenue from? Yeah. So, I mean, I looked at traffic and referral trends pretty much every day. I mean, the other thing that I was able to do was read a lot of the site. So, I mean, I I was the person pitching MSN and Yahoo content ideas from Insider. So I would every morning read what we published yesterday afternoon and evening into the morning, put together a digest, send that out to the editors. And so I would notice things that continued to pop up, trends, things that eventually led to the start of the affiliate business and the initial kind of pitch. And I'm always been a fan of online shopping and just sort of fascinated by that ecosystem. So maybe it just suited me because of my time at Pronto. But you would see things that like, we used to do Wall Street, I wouldn't even call them style stories, but just like hierarchy stories. So when you're allowed to buy Ferragamo, you can't do that till you make managing director. If you're an associate, you shouldn't wear a Rolex, like that type of stuff. And those stories always drove a ton of traffic and interest and not just in like the core audiences, but more broadly. So that was that sort of said, okay, maybe there's an appetite for more style coverage, our phone reviews and coverage of iPhones and Androids did well. So okay, maybe that's consumer electronics. And we always had a really robust careers and strategy section, you know, how to get your raise, talk to your boss, get promoted, add new skill sets, you know, advancement stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that became kind of like, I can't remember exactly what we called it. But you know, we started talking about well, okay, Can we do affiliate relationships with online courses, uh, any kind of educational tools, that kind of thing? And and that made up the initial pitch to leadership uh, at Insider for doing affiliate content directly. So when you started in the role, did you have to go in and pitch the stratification of those different verticals and then say, here's how much revenue we're going to generate? Or what what did that look like? Because you had to obviously make a pitch to build out a team. It was a pretty straightforward pitch. Back then, when you're a much smaller business, like the potential revenue opportunity doesn't have to be that big to get the green light. And so I used Q4 as a springboard for that saying, look, there's no better time to try a test. So I pitched the idea in sometime like September or October, got the okay to to borrow a, a resource from the newsroom. I believe it was a fellow or an intern. We put together a content plan, which was two to three articles a week for Q4. And we wanted to evaluate how we did afterwards. And we saw, okay, we generated enough revenue that we could probably afford to hire somebody on the editorial team to do this content full time. Let's do that. We did that for a while. And it was a pretty linear progression, which is like when you start to give the engine a couple turns and and keep going, it's it's relatively easy to make the investment case. But it was pretty casual, like, hey, let's let's see if this works. And then at what point did you know that it worked when was there ever an exponential growth point or did you get so much linear growth that you're able to get more support and continue to grow the team i think the good thing about affiliate commerce content is it can pay its own way right like it Mm -hmm. generates revenue ideally from day one and then hopefully if you do things correctly and you get some evergreen 
recurring revenue, then you just build up like an annuity, a content library annuity. But it was about traffic. So I would say we grew not exponentially, but very, very healthy linear growth. I mean, we did at Insider four years of triple digit year over year growth, during which time we also invested quite heavily in the team. And it went from two or three people to 30 at the time. But the whole time it was like, okay, we have to make sure that we're disciplined in like where we invest and that there's a case behind if we want to expand into a category, like what we think the time horizon is for that to make sense. So some somewhere in between, but it definitely was never like you have a you have a blank check, go go wild. Did you have your own editorial team or was it were you using shared resources from the normal writers? After the initial test, we had our own editorial team from from then on. We we built it starting in 2015 with one hire who ultimately became the the editor in chief of that business. It all built out underneath her over the next five years. And then how did you because a lot of people some of the larger publishers run up against sort of the church and state of what's paid and what's not and how to cover things with accuracy. How did you navigate that? There's always going to be some tension around that, especially when you're doing things that are relatively new to digital media. And I think affiliate back then was was still too new to really get like a, a full acceptance out of the gate. But you, you just try to continue communicating the value prop of, of what we're doing, right? The, in order to be successful, this content has to be reader first. You have to attract an audience to it. If you don't have an audience, you can't monetize that audience. Oh, and by the way, like this kind of revenue only gets generated not on the view, but on the purchase several steps later, right? So if you think about it long enough or you hear it enough times or I say it enough times, it's like, this is a reader service first. It has to provide value to people. They have to trust you enough to open their wallet and click purchase. And you can only do that so many times if you're not doing a good job. They have to keep these products. And by the way, like if they return them, we lose the money, right? So like they have to buy the product, they have to like the product, they have to keep the product. And so eventually, I think enough publishers started doing this. And it just became much more commonplace that now it's just another core way to monetize content, right? Like this content has its own unique business model. It's different from programmatic. It's different from direct, but that took time. And, and the biggest challenge was hiring folks who, who understood the difference and wanted to do that kind of work and do it well. Were you trying to go after the high intent traffic where someone was trying to find the best vacuum cleaner? Or were you trying to get low intent, but people who are already on the site and then saw an interesting story that your team had created and would click into it? We, we tried to do a little bit of everything. When we first started the operation, so this is like 2015, 2016, publishers were getting tremendous amounts of traffic from the social platform, specifically Facebook. So we leaned into that initially rather than SEO. And that growth actually fueled a lot of the investments that we later made into, into search. So we didn't start out to build an SEO-based affiliate business, but when you need traffic, you just look anywhere that you can get traffic, right? And so initially, we built that off of Facebook traffic. That was pretty successful. I mean, obviously, the the intent on Google is is hard to match, but when when we had a large social following and Facebook was promoting publisher content, that stuff did really, really well. And then over time, we sort of shifted more and more resources into the uh, search business. So it, it kind of happened over time. I think we started really focusing on that in probably 2017, 2018 and beyond. Beyond 
getting paid for conversion? Were there other affiliate revenue streams that you generated or would you sell in different sponsorship packaging around the content you were creating? That was pretty early on. That that sort of stuff depends a lot on the, the advertiser mix that you have uh, at a given company. And at Insider, we had a lot of a lot of advertisers that didn't really sell stuff on the affiliate side, you know, weren't a huge buying client of Walmart or Target or, or major CPGs. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a ton of overlap there. We we certainly had a few conversations about it, but for the most part, the mix of partners was pretty different on both, which was convenient for us. It made, made having those conversations pretty easy, but it's definitely something at, at brands that aren't probably as business heavy that have to navigate carefully. And I know some of those are working on that now. I know now when you go to Insider, the paywall is pretty pervasive of of it popping up and saying, hey, subscribe, even on some of the more trafficked articles. Was there ever a tension of, and maybe the paywall wasn't as pervasive at that point, but where you would push to keep them outside the paywall? Yeah, I mean, we we were always under we always had an understanding that this this kind of content had a different revenue model behind it. So I would say it was always you know free and available to users. I think we did some testing around even if people who we had like a like a, we did some cap testing, right? So if you read six or seven articles a month, we're going to show you the paywall after article six. If that was an affiliate article, we would sometimes show the paywall anyway, just to see what would happen. But for the most part, no, we we treated that particular group of articles as one that had its own business model behind it, right? There were articles that were meant to drive tons of traffic and, and monetize via programmatic. Those were never behind the paywall. And then the paywall stuff was the like high investment, original reporting things that you couldn't really hopefully ever pay for with like a million eyeballs because they're very, very industry specific stuff, right? So, you know, maybe 20, it's relevant to 20,000 people in the world, but all 20,000 people are going to want to read it. Did you experiment with different content types, like length, conversion funnels, like different ways of maybe having a buy box? Can you walk through a little bit about just how you thought about creating the content and how you did the testing around that? Yeah, I mean, we did do some of that ab testing on on content was pretty tough to do at scale once you're talking about a library of like 8 or 10,000 articles the guiding philosophy for us was always look you, you got to be telling a, an interesting and compelling story like use the right format for that but there are certain things you have to do to to drive value for the user right like you need to make sure you answer all the questions you need to make sure you make a clear recommendation that stuff was was more important. I mean, we did original photography in some, we didn't do it in others. To me, it really just came down to like, is this a compelling review? Does this convince the user that this product is going to add value? So you left Insider and joined Recurrent Ventures. Most people really didn't know what Recurrent Ventures was until they had raised $300 million from Blackstone. I think Recurrent's been probably the most active in buying legacy titles. And then they've started to buy some more digital first businesses as of late. Just tell us a little bit more about your role. What what got you excited to join Recurrent? Yeah, so I was thinking about making a change. I, I had almost 10 in years at Insider, which was a, a great experience. But for me, what when I started looking around and got connected to the team at Recurrent, what really excited me about it was just the deal activity, certainly the ability to bring new brands into the fold, but also just the collection 
of, of sites that they've acquired to date. Some really strong brands are Field and Stream and Outdoor Life are well over 100 years old. Bob Vila is a fantastic site that I've admired for years, doing really great work. And, you know, my, my wife and I bought a house in 2021. So I've found myself reading them a lot more just organically anyway, and then realized, oh, Recurrent is the company that owns them. So it's, I think that what Recurrent's doing with these enthusiast communities to me presents a really compelling long-term value opportunity for the affiliate business and not just continuing to do affiliate well, which we do driving sales, driving product recommendations in these core categories. But when you have brands that are so specific in what they do, I think it allows you to verticalize more. And so there I'm thinking kind of like what what Food 52 was able to do with recipes, then launch a marketplace, then doing their own products, then eventually what they've started doing now is, is buying brands. So you look for these overlapping interests and say, all right, well, how do we take one plus one and turn it into two and a half or, or three? And so I think that's something that Insider, because it's such a broad brand, wasn't able to do, right? It can go really wide. You can talk about travel, you can talk about personal finance, you can talk about home and kitchen and style. But by doing all of those things, it's tough to really get into one of those categories specifically and do the vertical thing. So that's that's what I wanted to try next for, for my career. And I think Recurrent's a, a great place to try to do that. That's really interesting, the verticalization comment you made. Because once you have the audience, you can build a community and then sell through different products. Yeah. And and just the amount of data is so compelling, right? You mm-hmm. you see hundreds of millions of dollars of spending flow through your pipes and you say, oh, wow, it requires a ton of analysis and we're just getting started there. But what are the brands that people like? What are their price point sensitivities? What are their favorite colors? What products get returned the most? And I think the the long-term goal for us is to use that information to make a better product or to help our partners make better products that then convert better, that stay in people's houses or garages or whatever, and, and just sort of make the ecosystem more helpful and useful. How are you thinking about this next phase of content commerce? I think like anything that becomes popular, there there's going to be sort of a, a commoditization of it. And I think we're, we're seeing that with publishers, right? A lot of publishers are doing reviews and they're doing them around the most common product categories. And, and that, that obviously makes sense. And, and we do it too. I think that's just going to make the ecosystem that much more competitive. And, you know, that's a moat for publishers that have either been in the game for a really long time or, or see the long-term value proposition of, of this kind of advertising business, which is like what everybody's trying to do, right? You need to be committed to really adding value, right? And that's, that's what I think about with my time at Pronto, which was, you know, people search for a particular product, they come to Pronto, we show them a grid of a bunch of products, and then they go buy the thing that they look at, right? But there was very little context, recommendations, you're just kind of moving people from one place to the next, right? So the people, the sites that actually help people are just going to continue to do better and better. Google drives a tremendous amount of this ecosystem now, and I don't see that changing because it is still the most reliable source of traffic for this kind of content. We still get social traffic. We still do emails. There's a lot of publishers, I think, are rightly thinking about how do we own more of our audience rather than just renting it from Google? My, my point of view is that's great, but as long as you continue to provide the service that Google wants for its users, you will 
happily continue to live there. With the Chrome browser, you know, one of the nuances is like everyone types into the top, which becomes a search, right? So even, yes, sometimes people put a .com, but most of the way that you find the internet is is through Google. Yeah, no, and I think that gives Google a tremendous amount of data too. I read something about this and it finally clicked for me. Like I am an Amazon customer. I order stuff on Amazon. When my shipment notifications and delivery notifications come from Amazon, the product information is not in the email. And somebody posited like that's because they don't, Amazon doesn't want Google to know what people are buying because Gmail or Chrome is where sure. this information comes because most people have a Gmail account. Yeah, that could be why. Makes sense. So Google has a ton of this information, right? So they they are probably going to apply that. And so, again, it's just like, make sure that the products you're recommending are high quality. That's most people end up finding that out. But then I guess you just have to continue making sure that you are adding value as part of the funnel rather than simply becoming a middle player that's just trying to get their cut. Have you started to experiment with social commerce, leveraging like TikTok? Obviously, you have Donut Media, which has a really large following on YouTube, and they started to open up some commerce features there, mainly for products I think that you would sell yourselves. But how do you think about social? Social is an interesting one. When those platforms were driving a ton of traffic, the it made a, a lot of sense, right? You just acquire traffic to the articles, then try to get people to run through your traditional affiliate funnel. I think that the the platforms have looked at affiliate here and there. Nobody's really done it super well. I mean, they look at it from their point of view. They want to do more commerce features, right? Because they, you know, the companies that are their largest advertisers are retailers, so they build products to serve them first, but. And, and that's kind of like what happened at Pronto, right? Comparison shopping was about the products, not necessarily the context, right? So that's where the dollars are. And then once those dollars come into the ecosystem, then it becomes about, okay, well, now you're seeing so much product on the platform. How do you add context to that? And that's the next step. And that's where publishers come in, channels come in, creators come in is, okay, once the ecosystem is developed, how do you start to navigate that? We sell Donuts merch on the channel now. We don't do a ton of affiliate on YouTube, but I think once there's a lot of e-commerce on these platforms, the next phase of that becomes, okay, well, how do we curate these platforms e-commerce offering? So you've been at Recurrent for two years now. Have there been wins or exciting new initiatives that you want to talk about? So we've we've started to have the conversation around verticalizing. I think we're very excited about continuing to leverage these brands to collaborate on products together. And then for me, one of the most, uh, and I don't want to say unexpected, but like pleasant surprises about the portfolio of brands that we have is just how much the advertiser mix is different than it was for me at a, a large, more broad digital publisher. So we have some really great relationships with retailers that were not on the radar of probably most sort of large publishers, right? We have an incredible relationship with Cabela's and Bass Pro in the outdoor space. And it's just been great to work with those advertisers because they're so endemic to the brand. They love the work that we're doing. They want to collaborate more. And it's great to have those conversations because unless you're a BuzzFeed or a Dot Dash, it's much harder to have those conversations with Walmart without that kind of scale. And so in our core categories, we're able to have some really great conversations with partners. And, and I think that over the next couple of years is going to drive some pretty interesting stuff. Are those partners more open to doing 
more than just a, a CPA? Are they collaborating on content? Because in the outdoor space, going back to the cable days, a lot of those shows were kind of infomercials in a way where the, the fishing lure company would be actually paying for a lot of that content. So curious, what do those integrations look like in the future? I don't know, to be honest. Th- those conversations are still still pretty early, but mm-hmm. um, I, I do think there's going to be more to do there. Uh, and again, I think finding ways to collaborate on bringing new products to market for that is something I, I'd love to, to make happen, right? I hope and we'll continue to work on that with our partners. But yeah, I think it's still a little early to tell. There's been a bunch to work on, but that's kind of like the next phase for me is, is figuring out how to make that stuff start to work. Got it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brenton, for joining us today. Really appreciated the time and learning more about your different experiences at IAC Insider now recurrent. I think people really enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great, great as always to catch up late. And that wraps up another enlightening episode of the Smooth Operator podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Brenton Freschetti from Recurrent Ventures. Stay tuned for more episodes where we bring you the stories of exceptional individuals who have made their mark in the world of affiliate marketing. Don't forget to subscribe to the Smooth Operator podcast on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode with your friends and colleagues who are as passionate about the industry as we are. Until next time, keep innovating, keep optimizing, keep operating smoothly.